Hello. Welcome to Fuel, Rock Church's midweek Bible study. And we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation, where last time we shifted gears and left the past and began focusing on the future. And a way I can describe where we're going tonight is that if chapter 4, the chapter we did last time, if it was a TV show, it would have ended with the words, to be continued. And when you tuned in tonight, you would hear a narrator say something like, previously in Revelation, right? We've all watched shows like that. And, and then they would go about and do a recap, and that recap would set up the next episode. So that's what we're going to do tonight, previously in Revelation. After completing the transcription of Jesus' seven letters to seven churches, John looks up and sees a door standing open in heaven. And that's the way the scene opened last time. Jesus, with a voice like a trumpet, tells John, come up here. And at that moment, he's instantly transported to the throne room of God. He then proceeds to give us an in-depth description of what he sees and hears. And he gives us such an amazing description that we can see the visual almost as clearly as if we're right there with him in the throne room. And, you know, just a note on this. The more we go over this and visualize it, the more real the Spirit of God will make it to us. That's why it's so important to not just read the Word of God, but to meditate on the Word of God. Amen? And there are many reasons why God gives us these two chapters, chapters four and five. But one reason I believe it's to see ourselves in the throne room. We need to see ourselves right there alongside these elders worshiping God. You know, one of the most overlooked themes of the book of Revelation is worship. And studying these two chapters should impact the way we worship. Worship is sometimes called worth-ship because it's all about how worthy God is. How worthy is he to be worshipped? And the great benefit of studying these chapters is we get to see how worthy he really is because we get to see him how he truly is. It helps us have the proper perspective regarding him and then that will empower us to worship him more accurately so that we can worship him, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. And we can do that because the description that John gives us is so accurate and it's so glorious. We see God the Father sitting on his throne. He tells us, John does, the only way that he can describe what he's looking at is, is that God looks like shining, brilliant jewels. And then he tells us there's a ring of emerald light emanating and encircling the throne. Then John's gaze shifts and we see 24 thrones and on the thrones, 24 elders who represent the church in her royal priesthood role, ministering to God in the Holy of Holies. What a picture. Next, we see the four living creatures, also known as the cherubim, which are winged angelic beings, often associated with worship and praise of God. The cherubim are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 when God drove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. If you remember, he placed cherubim at the east of the garden to guard it. Cherubim are also mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, both in chapters 1 and in chapter 10, although they're described with four wings in Ezekiel. But in Revelation, we see them with six wings. And, and what seems kind of wild at first is the fact that they have eyes, 
all over there, front and back. Now, we didn't really go into detail last week, so let's take a second look at these amazing creatures and let's get some uh, more details regarding them. One way to look at these creatures is that they reflect, because they're gazing on God, they reflect the attributes of God. The first being his omniscience. The omniscience of God simply means that God is all-knowing. And in the cherubim, this is indicated by them being full of eyes. Anytime you see something with multiple eyes on it in scripture, it's a reference to the fact that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He sees everything. Another attribute displayed by the cherubim is the omnipresence of God. See, these six wings speak to the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere present. There is nowhere that God is not. Sometimes we're not conscious of his spirit, but his spirit is everywhere and his spirit is with you even right now. Remember also John described each of these living creatures as resembling a certain animal. These also reflect attributes of God. The lion is the first cherubim. It looks like a, a face like a lion. That speaks to God's majesty and omnipotence. All powerful. Then the ox reminds us of God's faithfulness, his faithful labor and his patience. Then the third one, the man. Remember, man is created in God's image. And so this speaks to God's intelligence. And then the eagle speaks of God's supreme sovereignty. Now, also regarding these cherubim, some commentators uh, see in these living creatures Christ as stated in the Gospels. You could look at the Gospels and you could see each one of these. Matthew, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark, the servant of Yahweh. Luke, incarnate human Jesus. And John, the eagle as the divine son of God. All very interesting stuff to think about. But the main thing to remember about them is this. They always accompany and are around the throne of God. And they lead God's creatures in praise and worship. They tell us that worship and the presence of God go in hand in hand. Do you want a more real and living experience with God? Worship is the pathway. God inhabits the praises of his people. And what a sight it's going to be to us when we see these four creatures leading us and all of heaven in worship when we get to heaven. Also remember, we saw the Holy Spirit was here as well in the throne room, represented by the seven golden lampstands. And we, and we noted two-thirds of the Trinity is in view, but one member is missing. But don't worry, he's going to make his entrance tonight. And as we left the scene last week, we saw these living creatures praising and worshiping God. And when they initiate the worship, it created a domino effect. First, they started worshiping. Then the elders fall on their faces before God. Then they throw their crowns down before God and they start praising him. They're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created you know sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the very basic fact that we would not even be here we would not even exist if God didn't will us into existence and because of that fact alone he deserves our allegiance he's worthy of our love of our everything our appropriate response to God is this Gratitude manifested by submission. 
That means the laying down of our own self, laying down our own will in favor of his will. And so that's where we left them last week. God on his throne, atmosphere filled with the presence of God, the living creatures praising and worshiping and the elders on their face before God and John standing there. I'm sure he's in stunned awe and amazement as he looks at this scene. All the beauty, all the holiness, all the joy of heaven right there before him. So let's pick up our study from there. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book? And to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven ears, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. All right. Now let's go ahead and break this down. John continues his description of what he's witnessing in the throne room. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book or a scroll written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. So the first thing we see in this chapter is that God the Father holds in his hand a rolled up scroll which is written upon on the inside and the outside of it, and that it is sealed with seven seals. And this scroll, we don't want to miss this. It's of paramount importance. As a matter of fact, the rest of the book is going to flow out of whatever this mysterious scroll says. So let's start working on decoding this scroll. Everything in the book of Revelation is in code, right? So let's get the facts. First, we see that it has been sealed seven times. It has seven seals on it. Now, it's well known, first of all, that Roman law required that a will be sealed seven times, which provides a clue. Clue number one, this scroll contains the will of God. Also remember, the book of Revelation is built on the number seven, which is the number of completion. Everything is getting completed in this book that got started in Genesis. So it makes sense that this scroll is sealed with seven seals. But what exactly is this scroll? There are a lot of theories, but I believe as we look at what the Bible says about it and what great teachers and scholars after reading the Bible have said about it, we're going to get a great understanding. I don't think this is going to be mysterious at all when we get done, what we're going to be looking at here in God's right hands. So let's look at some ideas from what some commentators have said it is right now. Godet said this scroll was the book of the new covenant. Others label it the book of judgment. Walter Scott called it the revelation of God's purpose and counsel concerning the world. 
Dr. Harry Ironside, one of my favorite teachers, he thinks maybe that it is the title deed to this world, or more broadly, God's creation, title deed, right? Satan has stolen it, but Jesus earned it back at the cross. He redeemed it, and it belongs to him. F.B. Meyer says it contains the successive steps that need to be taken to win the empire of the world for Christ. And as the seals are opened, they reveal the contents of the scroll. The People's New Testament says it's the book of the future. Okay, so that all, you put that all together, it begins to give us a picture. But now let's get some info on it from the word itself. Here are the facts that we have so far. This scroll we know is in the right hand of God the Father. Right hand means power, right? It has something to do with the complete will of God, symbolized by the fact that it is sealed with seven seals. All right, so that's what we know so far. Let's keep going. John now tells us what he saw next. He continues. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So a strong angel now enters the scene. Strong angel means powerful angel in this context. And it has a loud voice. The popular commentary explains this well. It says, the angel of this verse is strong and his voice is great because his cry has to be heard in every region of the universe, in heaven, in earth, and in Hades. The strong angel has an important question. Who is worthy to open the book and break the seals? And the answer was that nobody in the entire universe was found worthy to open it. Now, based on John's reaction of this news, this scroll must be important. And this news that he's getting right now, it has to be devastating. Because as John comes to the understanding that there is nobody worthy, he begins to weep profusely. So now with this information, we can add some more facts about what we know about this scroll in God's right hand. First of all, the scroll needs to be opened by somebody worthy of opening it. However, no person in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, nobody in the universe is found worthy to open it. John is broken over the fact that nobody can open it, and he begins weeping greatly. But then one of the elders sees him crying, and listen to the great news this elder has for John and us. It says, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You see the seven eyes, the omniscience of God again. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here's the next fact. Jesus has overcome. So even though there's nobody to, worthy to open, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. Jesus stands alone. 
And now the last two facts about the scroll are not in this chapter, but in the next chapter, chapter 6. And what we find out there is that Jesus does indeed begin to break the seals. And then we see that the breaking of the seals released judgment on the earth. It's the beginning of the tribulation. That culminates with the wrath of God being poured out and Jesus coming back and repossessing the earth and setting up his kingdom with his saints. So now we've done our detective work. We've got all the facts that we need. We now get to put it all together and we see what's going on here with this scroll. So let's recap real quick. The scroll is in the right hand of God, the father power. It has something to do with the complete will of God, the seven seals. The scroll needs to be opened by somebody worthy of opening, but no person in heaven on earth or in Hades, nobody in the universe has been found worthy to open it. John is broken over this fact that nobody can open it. It must be important. It must be doom setting if nobody can open it, if that causes John to weep greatly. But then we find out Jesus has overcome and is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. And Jesus will break those seals. The breaking of those seals causes the tribulation ending with Jesus coming back. Ending with those, those judgments ending and Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth. That is what's going on with the scroll. Those are all the main facts concerning it. So when you put this all together, what we have in view here, what we're looking at written on this scroll, watch this now, it's the complete action plan for the repossession of the earth. It's the complete action plan for the repossession of the earth. Only Jesus is worthy to initiate and execute the actions needed to take his creation back. Something that illustrates this is the army's operation arm order. Okay. In the army, when you get ready to do a mission, you create what's called an op order or an operations order. You don't do anything, any kind of mission in the army without an operation order. And that operation order contains every single detail of what you plan to do to accomplish your mission. So you could think of this scroll like a military operation order because that is exactly what is about to happen. The earth has been held by a hostile agent, the God of this world, AKA Satan for thousands of years. But the lion of the tribe of Judah prevailed against him on the cross, the lamb that had been slain, but he didn't take full possession at the time because he had a plan. And that plan was for the church to be formed and for people to be redeemed. And so it's been for the last 2000 years. But now here in revelation five, we now see Jesus as a mighty general. The church age is complete, and so he is now getting ready to stage an overthrow mission, to take full possession. Everybody say full possession. To take full possession of the victory he accomplished at Calvary. Now, to emphasize this, notice Christ is no longer sitting. In the New Testament, he's described as seated at the right hand of God, but no longer. Our Lord is on the move. He's getting ready to execute his mission. Now watch what happens the second Jesus takes the scroll. 
get the visual. Jesus now takes the scroll and it says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Very interesting. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Earth. All right. Let's not miss the significance and the magnitude of the event that's taking place here. Jesus takes the scroll and as he does, the four living creatures and the 24 elders immediately hit their, hit the ground. They fall down before the lamb, before Jesus. We also see another couple of things here that we didn't get in chapter four. First, we see these elders are each holding a harp. This is to worship God with. But then it says they have golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a great picture for us to put in our mind when we pray and also the mission of the church. Do you ever feel like your prayers aren't effective? The enemy wants you to think that. But the Bible says that your prayers are powerful. And here we see your prayers represented as incense. Later, we're going to see that incense is going to be burned and it goes right up before God. And as it goes up before God, it causes a reaction on the earth. So don't ever be discouraged or think your prayers are not making a difference. The bottom line is faith should rise up when you pray, knowing that quite literally your prayers are going right up before God Almighty on his throne, initiating action on the earth. Another note about the fact that they have a harp and a bowl. This verse has actually inspired a method of prayer that's very popular called the harp and bowl model of prayer, which just means that you conduct your prayer time by doing intervals of praise and worship, followed by a period of bringing your prayers and supplications to God. They go hand in hand, worship and praise and then prayer. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that sometimes our prayer life can get stagnant. And if your prayer uh, life feels like that, give this model of prayer a try it uh, will help you stir up your prayer life and the reason why is because it gets all your being involved when you praise and worship God and then go into prayer you're getting your full being involved you're clapping your hands you're singing and uh, um, this kind of prayer for me it really does help spark my prayer life because sometimes we need to stir up the gift that's in us that and we each have a prayer gift inside of us you might think that you don't know how to pray or sometimes it feels like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling. But sometimes we just need to stir it up first with some praise, some worship, some adoration of God. As we do that, our whole being gets involved. The presence of God enters in and changes our atmosphere. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves more able to pray. Harp and bowl uh, prayer. Take a look into that. Now it says that they sang a new song. And then they give us the words of the song. It says, worthy is the lamb to take the book and to break its seals. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain and purchased people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to God by his blood. 
And not only did he purchase us back, but it says he makes us a kingdom of priests to God. And our destiny is to reign with him upon the earth. And the reason, notice it says it's a new song. It is a new song because there's never been a song like this. If you could go back millions of years, billions of years, trillions of years, if you go all the way back into eternity past, nothing like the church has ever happened before. There has never been a group of people that rebelled against God. And then God demonstrated his amazing love by becoming one of them and then dying for them to purchase them back and to make them his children. That has never happened before. So do we have any idea of how incredible Jesus' sacrifice for us was? We can try, but I don't think that we'll ever wrap our mind around it in this life. And so what a scene we are looking at here. Jesus King of kings, Lord of lords, Lamb of God. He takes the scroll. These elders and four living creatures are down on their faces before him. This sets off a praise and a worship fit throughout, not just all of heaven, but really the entire universe. John is looking at this and then something else gets his, his attention. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. The scene now just expands. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So recapping what starts off as a beautiful event in chapter four of the throne room with the elders and the living creatures worshiping God, we see turn into a sad event at the beginning of this chapter as John realizes there's nobody worthy to take the seven sealed scroll from the right hand of God the Father. But then it turns into an escalating fit of praise and worship for God the Father and for Jesus. Notice that Jesus is being worshiped at the same level as the Father. Now look at the number, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. How many is that? Is that millions? Actually, it's probably more like billions. So picture the biggest crowd you have ever seen and then multiply it exponentially. The size of this crowd, this is the biggest worship service you have ever seen. And you and I are going to be a part of it. And they begin praising Jesus. Let's listen now to how Bible teacher Warren Wearsby explains it. He says this, in this closing burst of praise, all the angels and every creature in the universe join together to worship the Redeemer. What a cascade of harmony John heard. In this hymn, they stated those things that Jesus Christ deserved to receive because of his sacrificial death on the cross. When he was on earth, people didn't ascribe these things to him. 
Many of these things he deliberately laid aside in what theologians call his humiliation. He was born in weakness and he died in weakness. And yet he's the recipient of all power. He became the poorest of the poor. And yet he owns all the riches of heaven and earth. Men laughed at him and called him a fool. Yet he is the very wisdom of God. He shared in the sinless weaknesses of humanity as he hungered, thirsted, and became weary. Yet today in glory, he possesses all strength. On earth, he experienced humil humiliation and shame as sinners ridiculed and reviled him. They laughed at his kingship and attired him in a mock robe, crown, and scepter. But all of that is changed now. He has received all honor and all glory and all blessing. He became a curse for us on the cross so that we can never be under the curse again. He is worthy of all praise. And the worship service climaxed with all of the universe praising the Lamb of God and the Father seated on the throne. What a scene. Now, one final thought as we end this session. There are a lot of cults and isms out there that deny the deity of Christ. They deny the fact that Jesus is God. They deny his godhood. Most of them hold him in high esteem. They say Jesus is worthy of respect, but should not be worshipped. Now, if you ever encounter this and you want to share uh, truth that will potentially help the person who believes this, this chapter is for you because this chapter utterly decimates any argument from any religion or any philosophy that says that Jesus is not God. Because what we just saw here in chapter five, if you remember in chapter four, we saw the elders and the living creatures worshiping God, the father here, we see all created beings worshiping Jesus. And when you worship anything other than God, that is called what? Idolatry, right? So when somebody knocks on your door and tries to tell you that Jesus is not God, you can ask them the following, humbly and prayerfully, of course, but ask them the following question. Does God the Father allow idolatry in heaven? Of course, they're going to say no. Then you could show them in chapter 4 where people are worshiping God the Father in heaven. Then you can show them, and here's the clincher, you can show them here in chapter 5 where those same people are worshiping Jesus in the same exact way. This chapter is powerful evidence to the deity of Christ. And there are references like that here all throughout Revelation that we're going to highlight as we come across them. So this is some good stuff. Amen. Well, that wraps up chapter five. Things are really starting to take off now. And next time it really is on because we're going to jump into chapter six and we're going to see this scene continue to unfold. The Lamb of God will begin to break open the seals on the scroll and God's final plan for the world in its current state will now begin to unfold. It's going to be amazing. And what's going to make it even more amazing is the relevance of what we're seeing because that is going to initiate the great tribulation on earth. And if we now bring this into our time, 
if what we're looking at right now in the time that we live in is what we've called the great convergence, where world history is catching up with Bible prophecy, the world is catching up with the word. If that's what we're witnessing right now, then we know that these events are not too far off. And you know what else that means? That means that the beginning of chapter four, where Jesus said, come up here to John, that moment's getting close. And then you know what that also means? That that scene that we've been looking at in heaven over these last two chapters, that's actually getting set up right now, preparing for the church to be there and preparing for the initiation of God's final operation order to be executed and for his creation to be taken back from our enemy, our adversary, the devil, who has hurt, harmed, destroyed, murdered, and done so much damage and pain to so many people. All this means that that day is coming to, a, to an end. And so, until next time, may God richly bless you and yours. This is Pastor Chris signing off.